Please open your Bibles, uh, if you would, to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. This is going to be the primary focus of the message this morning. However, we're going to be looking at uh, Revelation chapter 4 as well to set set the stage for the events that unfold in chapter 5. And as you turn there, I just wanted to share with you briefly the inspiration for this message as it's a text that has really been on my heart for quite a few months now. Back on April 25th of this year, it was the Friday following Resurrection Sunday, I was in Athens with a couple of friends that I serve alongside with regularly, and we were doing some witnessing. And um, I had really been uh, thinking about this text because I was grieved, really, somewhat, about how little the world uh, understands why the church celebrates Resurrection Sunday. Um, You know, I just was thinking about how so many people, it's just a day, really, where this fictional bunny is thought to have some sort of magical power to deliver baskets of candy and gifts to children all over the world. And really, for those who decide to go to church, uh, those in the world, it's really just like like a, merely a a twice-a-year formality or necessity, if you would. And really, all it is is something that leads up to the bigger events of the day for most people. And so much of the world really is hijacked that day to mask for us what it really represents. You know, I think of another day in the Christian calendar in December where it seems to have had the same result. And so I I preached that text this night uh, to passerbys, many of them who were more than likely unsaved people, and I pleaded with them to listen to these words because the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that which we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday, was not just a historical event that had one-time implications, but rather it was an event of colossal proportions with eternal ramifications for every single person on this earth, especially for us as Christians. And that's the reason why this text has really sat with me for so long. First and foremost, it's an examination of my own heart, really to, to see whether Christ has his proper place of prominence and allegiance and devotion Uh, in my own life as Lord and ruler and Savior, and second, for the church, the rest of the church, his bride. Because indeed the church, uh, there's many, I think, who sit in the walls of churches all over America really who have no idea or really don't understand how worthy Jesus is to be worshipped. Not just one Sunday a year when we all shout, he is risen, but really every day of the year. And so the question really that I have for all of us today is this. Is Jesus Christ worthy of our full surrender to him? I'm not asking if he should be your savior because, you know, well, hell is a lot worse than heaven would be. I'm not asking if your church attendance or your Bible reading is meeting a certain criteria. I'm not asking about your giving or your charity or even the times when you're compelled to open your mouth and tell other people that you're a Christian. I'm not even asking really if Jesus is worthy of worship Because as we're going to see today, the Bible shows that he is. But what I am asking is whether you truly believe that Jesus alone is worthy of a life completely sold out and devoted to serving him no matter the cost. That's the question that demands deep consideration, really, and an honest answer. Because our lifestyle is going to be a reflection of how we respond to that question. How we live every day is a good indicator of Christ's place in our lives. Our priorities will reflect that. John Piper said, the human heart was made to stand in awe of ultimate excellence. You were made to admire Jesus Christ, the Son of God, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And if your heart is not much taken up with him, then you don't need to look any farther to know the deepest source of your frustration. Bonaventure, who was a medieval Franciscan teacher, was once asked by a student, why don't men love God more? And Bonaventure said, they don't love him because they don't know him. And I think that's how we should really be thinking about Christ today. If we can grasp even just a glimpse of his excellence, then the cost of loving him, trusting him, following him will be worth more than all the gold that this world can offer us. And that's my prayer, really, for you and for me today. And so I ask every adult in this room, every young adult that's here, and every child to listen to these words closely. Well, our text forwards ahead to the empty tomb. Talk about the resurrection, and and now we forward to a day that we await with great anticipation when we begin to see the full realization of everything that Jesus accomplished while he was here on this earth, the authority that was given to him, and what it means for the future. So if you would, please stand as we read God's word. Again, Revelation chapter 5. The word of God says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures And the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked... And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this moment having brought songs of praise and worship to you today. Lord, I pray that this is not just a motion that we're going through. I pray that these songs were not offered to you in vain today, Lord. But that, Lord, it was just a a preparation, if you would, Father, to really prepare our hearts to be open to receive your word today, to understand the worthiness of Christ in our own lives, Lord. Father, help us. We can find so many things to do that have nothing to do with Jesus. 
And when it comes time to serving him, Father, it seems like we just don't have enough time. So Lord, make room in our hearts today. Holy Spirit, do the work that you have set forth to do in this place, Father, whether it be for encouragement, whether it be for conviction, Lord, whether it be for salvation, Lord, have your way today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In all honesty, this text really that we read is enough that we can really just get up and go home now. I mean, that, that's the word of God. I mean, truly, uh, we just need, need to open God's word and, and read what it says, and we can all have enough where we can leave this place and go worship God the way that we're supposed to and to serve him faithfully. I shared with someone recently how, you know, when I get up to preach, all I'm really doing is sharing with you what God has taught me while I studied and prepared for this sermon. Anybody who's ever preached a sermon or, or prepared a Bible study lesson will always tell you, and, 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 and without a doubt, that they always learn more than they can ever teach. So by the grace of God, I'm going to exposit this text this morning and pray that really I do no injustice to what has already been divinely recorded for us on these pages. We're going to spend some of our time this morning discussing chapter 4, as I mentioned earlier, as a prelude to chapter 5. D.A. Carson said chapter 4 is to chapter 5 what a setting is to a drama. And indeed, a drama is unfolding here. But to fully grasp the significance of what takes place in chapter 5, we first must understand what's going on in chapter 4. So I'd like us to take a few minutes to do just that. But before that, this letter, uh, I want to go back just real quick to chapter 1. This letter is described as the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's probably better understood as the revelation by Jesus Christ or the revelation from Jesus Christ rather than it merely being about Jesus. So Jesus is the immediate source of the revelation, God being the ultimate source. And so the Father gives the revelation to Jesus to show it in turn to his servants through John. Okay? You'll find, for example, in John's gospel, Jesus saying that the words that he speaks are not his own words, but the words of his Father. John 7, 16 and 17 says, My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. John 8, 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And John 12, verses 49 to 50, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Now, the Greek word used for revelation is the word apocalypsis, okay? It's a familiar word that, you, that you've heard many times, but it really carries the idea of a revealing or an unveiling, And it goes on to say in verse 1 of chapter 1 that God the Father gave Jesus the revelation and in turn Jesus shows his servants the things that will take place. So Jesus himself is going to reveal or unveil, if you would, all things. And in an interesting side note, in the beginning of this book, the word servant is used in chapter 1 to open this letter. The Greek word actually, some of you may know, is the word doulos. Doulos is the Greek word for servant. Typically, in Greek, that word is translated as slave. But in most uh, translations today, you'll actually find the word servant or bondservant more commonly used. I think actually the, the Holman Christian Standard Bible might be one of the few modern translations that actually uses the word slave with regularity to describe uh, people. 
And so it's, one of a, it's a word that's used repeatedly throughout the New Testament in the Greek really to refer to a person's total commitment to something or to someone, being a slave to something. So as we try to understand how worthy Jesus is of our full devotion, the truth is set here at the very beginning of this letter that all Christians are called to be slaves of Christ, okay? A total commitment. So John was given a command to write letters. It goes on at the beginning of this book uh, to seven churches in Asia Minor. We're not going to get into all that today. But then the scene changes. And in chapter 4, he sees a door standing open in heaven, and he hears the voice of Jesus calling him to see things that must take place. Now, these events take place, of course, after the letters are written to the seven churches. How long after? We don't know. But what we do know for certain is that John... What he's about to see is trustworthy because Jesus himself is going to show him these things. Jesus is revealing these things to John. And again, to truly understand the magnitude of what happens in chapter 5, as we're going to see, you really must pay close attention to what is happening here in chapter 4. So let's go ahead and take a look at that. What John sees in verse 2 is both a throne room, and as mentioned further down in verses 8 through 11, it's a place of worship. In Ezekiel's vision of the glory of the Lord, Ezekiel one twenty six, he describes it like this. There was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. He continues on in verses 27 and 28. And upward from what had the appearance of, uh, of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now look at verse 3 here in chapter 4. How John describes the one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Verses 5 and 6. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So you see the resemblance there from Ezekiel's vision to what John is seeing now. Moses also describes the divine presence of Yahweh in Exodus 24.10 like this. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for cleanness. So to John, everything about and around the throne represents the power and the majesty of the one who's sitting on the throne. And everything else he sees is described in relation to this central throne. Again, verse 3. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Verse 6. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are full living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind, who in verse 8, day and night, never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So this is the setting. 
What started as something looking like some sort of heavenly picture for John is now unfolding into the scene of active worship and proclamation. You see them worshiping God before the throne. Now, I want you to note that there's a repeated use here throughout this chapter of present tense verbs. And that's important because, like just we saw in verse 8, it says the phrase day and night. All right, it shows that this is not merely something that John saw once in a vision. But as one commentary I read describes it like this, a ritual in heaven repeating itself over and over again without rest or interruption. The throne is suddenly alive with living creatures hailing the anonymous someone seated on it as the Lord God Almighty. So first, there's just a person on the throne, and then it's unveiled that this is the Lord God Almighty whom all of heaven is worshiping. All right, so that's what unfolds here. And what do the 24 elders do continually? Verses 10 and 11. They fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So the elders celebrate worship, the worship of the Father because in his sovereign will he created and he sustains all things. Thus he is worthy to receive this threefold tribute, glory and honor and power. And I said, as I said earlier, all this is but a prelude for a new song that's going to be sung, which will not only praise the Father, but the Lamb also for redemption and an ultimate display of their divine worthiness. All the events of chapter 4 are setting the drama that unfolds here in chapter 5. So you ready? Yeah? Okay, let's go. So from creation in chapter 4, verse 11, the scene now shifts to a focus on redemption and recreation. John's attention now moves to something that God the Father is holding in his right hand. Verse 1 of chapter 5, a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. So let's talk about this scroll for a minute. First and foremost, the scroll is in his right hand. This is important. The right hand is a symbol for power and authority throughout Scripture. Therefore, the one who, who's holding it really has the full right to do so. Throughout Scripture, you see this. Exodus fifteen six. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Psalm 18.35, you have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. Psalm 110 verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 138.7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your right hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 64, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And Acts 5, 31 says that God exalted him at the right hand, at his right hand, as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Now the right hand also represents special blessings sometimes in scripture. If you remember the story in Genesis 48, Jacob placed his right hand on Ephraim to bless him, although he was the younger brother between him and Manasseh. It says in verses 18 and 19 of Genesis 48, And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. 
He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So God holds all of the future in his right hand, the scroll. And the Bible says here, it is written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Now this is no ordinary scroll. You'll find something similar back in Ezekiel chapter 2. Verses 9 and 10, Ezekiel said, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was written in it, and he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. So most ancient manuscripts were either made of like leather or papyrus, and so the material on the outside, it made it difficult for people to write really on the outside. So typically what they would do, like in a, a contract, for example, maybe in the Roman world, would have a summary of its contents written on the outside, and then the inside would have everything else, the fullness of, of all the details. And then it would be sealed with seven seals. But the language here really in this text suggests that this scroll has writing spread all over it. All right, So you could describe this particular scroll as a will written by God. And it contains curses or judgments that's going to be poured out on covenant breakers. But also the fulfillment of all the promises that God made to his people. You can also consider it to be something that's going to be opened, that all the contents of it are going to be executed themselves. A will itself or a contract written by God. So it not only foretells woes like Ezekiel saw, but it also discloses God's perfect plan of redemption and judgment in his work of creation. Revelation 8.13 announces these woes to those who dwell on the earth. And as the scroll begins to be opened later on in chapter 6, you don't get to really see the entire contents of the scroll all at once, but only the judgments as they're revealed when each seal is individually opened. There's similarities here to what God said also in Daniel chapter 12. God gives Daniel a vision of the time of the end. And then he tells him in verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal this book until the time of the end. Now, whether this is the same, very same scroll or not, we don't know for certain, but you get the idea of what John sees God holding. Quoting John Piper, he wrote the script for what will take place, and no one can change it. He has it in his own right hand. If the kingdom of Christ finally conquers and judgment finally falls on the unbelieving world, it will be because God holds all things firmly in his right hand. He goes on to say, what we learn from this is that we ought to submit to the authority of our king, our creator, and the ruler of all things. A picture of God's sovereign rule over all that will happen should bring us to our faces in reverence and fear. So he's basically saying you either believe this and it affects the way you live, or you don't believe it and it changes nothing about the way you live. Verse 2, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. So no creature is worthy to reveal and execute the final decrees of God. Where? In heaven or on earth or under the earth. All right? This term is what's known as a synecdoche. Has everybody ever heard that word before? A synecdoche? No? Okay. Synecdoche, basically, it's a figure of speech, which basically means that the parts represent the whole. Okay, that's what a synecdoche is. The parts represent the whole. So when the text here says heaven or on earth or under the earth, basically what it's describing is not three distinct places, but it's actually referring to the universe as a whole. 
So there's no one found anywhere who could open the scroll or look into it. No one. No servant, no elder, no living creature, nor anyone else in all the universe had the authority to break its seals, open the scroll, and reveal the script that God has written, which no one can alter. So the question, I think, that comes up here is this. Why doesn't God just open the scroll himself? I mean, is he incapable? Why is this mighty angel looking for someone else to open it? Well, I think the answer is this. The contents that are in this scroll have to do with every single person who ever walked, who now walks, or who will ever walk on the face of this earth. So for repentant sinners who deserve only condemnation, it's going to be unceasing joy lavished upon us. But that joy only comes because a mediator stood between us and a holy God who hates sin. If God were to open the scroll himself and pour out its contents on the world, with no one in between to absorb what flows from it, we would all be consumed, and no one would be saved. Now, is God capable of doing this himself? Certainly he is, but the eternal plan of redemption calls for something different. Someone else must satisfy the wrath of God the Father. Someone must be found worthy to take the scroll and open it. And no angel in heaven, no man on earth, and no devil in hell can come close to even touching it. Don't miss that. And so John, recognizing this, immediately he begins to weep. For a moment he sees no hope. If no one is worthy to open the scroll, then there is nothing but weeping. If no one is worthy to open the scroll, then as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Are we not? The gospel has not triumphed over sin and death. There is no marriage supper or new heaven and new earth. There is no eternal life. There is only weeping. And as David Platt put it, the silence of heaven testifies to the sinfulness of man. This is the interlude. This is the moment between John's weeping and what comes next. You must understand the weight and the gravity of what is happening here. The Father is seated on his throne, holding in his mighty right hand a scroll that reveals his plan to right all the wrongs, to place all things back in their proper order. The tension and the drama really are at full strength because there appears to be no one who has the authority to take it out of his hand. And I think this tension really is intentional to impress not only on John, but everyone who reads these words how utterly unique and how utterly worthy and how utterly, utterly necessary is the one who will break its seals. And now we meet him. So the first point I want us to see in your notes today is this. Jesus is worthy because of who he is and where he stands. <clears throat> Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scrolls, or open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one person who can open the scroll, the lion of Judah. This title echoes a messianic prophecy from Genesis 49:10 that says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Another messianic title mentioned here, the root of David, was spoken of in the Old Testament 
In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, as a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So the Jews saw the Messiah as the one who would really restore David's dynasty. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10 says that in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting, his resting place shall be glorious. In Revelation twenty-two sixteen, Jesus not only calls himself the descendant of David, but also the root of David. He is the source of David's rule. In Mark 12, while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said in verses 35 and 37, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, Psalm 110, which we read earlier, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And why is the lion worthy to open the scroll? Because he has conquered. And what has he conquered? Let's look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Charles Spurgeon said, Why should our exalted Lord appear in his wounds and glory? The wounds of Jesus are his glories, his jewels, his sacred ornaments. They are the trophies of his love and of his victory. He has divided the spoil with the strong. He has redeemed for himself a great multitude whom no man can number. And these scars are the memorials of the fight. Ah, if Christ thus loves to retain the thought of his sufferings for his people, how precious should his wounds be to us. Did you hear that? If Christ thus loves to retain the thought of his sufferings for his people, how precious should his wounds be to us. So the one who was initially announced as the traditional Jewish Messiah, the Lion of Judah from the line of David, now appears as the Christian Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, with the appearance, the text says, of having been slain, bearing the marks of death, but now standing alive. The slain Lamb is the victorious Lion. R.C. Sproul said he is simultaneously the fierce Lion of the tribe of Judah, warring against God's enemy, and the enemies and the gentle lamb that has been slain who purchased his people with the blood of his atoning sacrifice. The text says that he has seven horns and seven eyes. I want you to know that horns are typically representative of power. And the seven eyes, which are identified in Revelation 1 as God's seven spirits, and according to Second Chronicles 16.9, they run to and, fro the, uh, to and fro throughout the whole earth. The number seven signifies things like fullness or completion or perfection in Scripture. So in essence, this lion of Judah and conquering lamb is given attributes that would only be identified with God the Father. Do you see that? Attributes that would only be reserved for the Father himself have now been ascribed to the Son. Seven horns, omnipotent, all-powerful. Seven eyes, omnipresent, omniscient. Although at one time the lamb, had been, the lamb had been slain, he now stands. He's no stranger to this place. And as the scene unfolds, you begin to understand that he belongs there. Not like the others who are around the throne, but he's really presented here as one who is like an occupant of the throne. Much just like the one who's seated there. One of the commentaries I read said this. The discrepancy between what is announced 
the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David in verse 5. And what actually appears, a lamb looking as if it had been slain in verse 6, is not the kind of discrepancy that compels the reader to make a choice. Rather, each designation interprets and clarifies the other. The Jewish Messiah is the Christian Messiah. The triumphant lion is the slaughtered lamb. The mighty king is the crucified savior. He has indeed conquered, not by the sword, but by his death. The old Jewish messianic expectation is transformed in light of the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I read others who refer to him as no ordinary lamb, but rather a lion-like lamb. In fact, in chapter 6, verse 16, it says that men call to the mountains and the rocks, and they say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That's not the Jesus that is portrayed in many churches today or in the world. Hide us from his wrath. And in chapter 17, verse 14, speaking of when the enemies of God attempt to fight against this Lamb, it says this, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. He will conquer them. David Platt said this, Throughout history, from the beginning of time, men have come and men have gone. Women have come and women have gone. All of them, the noblest of them, the kindest of them, the strongest of them, the greatest of them, all of them have fallen prey to sin. All of them. Every single man and every single woman a slave to Satan. All of them. Generation after generation, century after century, every single man and every single woman succumbed to death. But then came another unlike any other before or after him. This man did not fall prey to sin. This man possessed power over sin. This man was not enslaved to Satan. This man would crush that ancient snake. This man did not succumb to death. This man triumphed over death. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory, the victory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Amen. And so Christ has conquered, what? Sin and death. Now the second point that I want us to see today is this. Jesus is worthy because of what he has accomplished. Jesus is worthy because of what he has accomplished. Look at verse 7. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. God the Father is sitting on the throne, holding the destiny of the world firmly in his right hand. And now we see Jesus walk up to him and take the scroll out of his hand. The Father who said his glory he will not share with another, now, in essence, fulfills what he spoke while Jesus was still on this earth. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. So when Jesus takes the scroll out of the right hand of the Father, it signifies, if you would, a transfer of authority over the contents of the scroll, whereby now Jesus is going to execute everything that is written in it. And as I said before, because he is the mediator... He's able to do this. And fully recognizing what just happened in verse 8 says this The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. As soon as Jesus takes the scroll from the right hand of the Father, He 
becomes the object of worship. The living creatures and the elders alike, who never cease to worship the Father, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. These same ones fall down before Jesus, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Jesus, uh, David said in Psalm 141-2, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And after ceaseless praise to the Father for the work of creation, now in verse 9, they sing a new song to Jesus, inspired by the redemptive work of the shedding of his own blood on the cross. What are they singing? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Saints, do not miss this. You were ransomed, purchased by Jesus for God. And he has made you a kingdom and priest to God, and you will reign on the earth. That should excite you. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 reminds us of this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How can we be indifferent to this? If you'll notice here, the text also does not say that Christ purchased all individuals in every tribe and language and people and nation. But rather he purchased people from every tribe and language and people and nation. In fact, the angel who appeared to Joseph in Matthew one twenty one told him this. Tell him that Mary would bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You see that? This is a very particular work of atonement that happens here. Christ's sacrifice on the cross was sufficient, certainly, to pay for every single sin in the world. But the payment itself applies to, according to John 3.16, whoever believes, or more literally, the believing ones, okay, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus saves the believing ones, his people, from their sins. Who are the believing ones? Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 11, tells us that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before God. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Those whom God had chosen from before the foundation of the world, what? They will believe. Make no mistake about it. They will believe. 
Piper puts it like this. When you purchase something, you generally purchase something particular. You choose it, and you buy it. This is his aim. In dying, he meant to gather a people, a bride, a church, a kingdom, a priesthood from every tribe. A particular purchase that Christ made. Christ's sacrifice was all sufficient, but those whom the Father gives to the Son are the ones who will be given a new heart with new desires. Look, listen to Jesus' words himself if you don't believe me. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6, 44. No one can come to me, come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6.65, he said, No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. John 10.29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. John 17.2, Jesus says that the Father has given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom he, the Father, has given him. John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. John 17, 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. John 17, 11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. If you are a Christian, my friend, make no mistake, it is because God chose you. We love because he first loved us. Right? To think otherwise is to rob Jesus of his glory. It really is. He's worthy of what no one in the whole universe is able to do. Walk up to the throne of God Take the scroll from his hand, remove the seals, and carry out its contents. Why? Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11 says, Because Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Last point I want to make today is this. Jesus is worthy because, what he, because of what he has been given. Because of what he has been given. John had just witnessed the four living creatures and the 24 elders offering ceaseless praise to the Father. But now he sees not just the living creatures and the elders, but also a countless number of angels, myriads of myriads, literally hundreds of millions and thousands of thousands. Daniel chapter 7 verse 10 describes the number like this. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And what they say, they say with a loud voice, offering sevenfold tribute. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. 
If this worship testifies to nothing else, without a doubt, it testifies to the deity of Christ. What the Lamb receives is not simply the scroll, but he receives wealth and wisdom and might and blessing along with the glory and the honor and the power that God the Father was worthy to receive in chapter 4. Equal praise is ascribed to the Lamb and to the one seated on the throne. Do you remember how Paul describes him in Colossians 1, 15 through 17? It says he is the image of the invisible God. This is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He continues in verses 18 through 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is God. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now, in this culminating act, in this awesome scene of worship, verse 13 says that John heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You remember the term I gave you earlier? Synecdoche? Here's another one right here. The parts represent the whole. We have four places that seem distinctive. Heaven, earth, under the earth and in the sea. Again, it's, rever- it's referring to the universe as a whole. So whereas there was no one anywhere who could open the scroll or look into it, now all of creation, all of creation offers fourfold praise to the Father and to the Son. R.C. Sproul said, Praises that started in the inner circles of worship and around the throne now extend outwards until they fill the universe. Christian, This is our Savior. This is our Redeemer. He is the one who adopted us into his family when we were but orphans and gave us an eternal home at the cost of his very life. Is he not worthy of every part of us? Listen to these words by Spurgeon. Let believers on earth imitate the saints in heaven in their nearness to Christ. Let us on earth be as the elders are in heaven, sitting around the throne. May Christ be the object of our thoughts, the center of our lives. How can we endure to live at such a distance from our beloved? How do we endure it? Make no mistake about what clearly has unfolded here in this text. God the Father sitting on his throne, and the risen Lamb, Jesus Christ, are inextricably joined together as the objects of Christian worship. Going forward through the rest of this book, they're going to be, Jesus and the Father will be seen together as equals, both to be feared or worshipped, having the decisive roles in the work of salvation. Okay? I mentioned earlier Revelation uh, 6.16, where it says, Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Together, there's another scene of worship in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, where a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They are joined together. Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Joined together. Revelation 22, verses 1 and 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him together. The traditional Jewish Messiah that many today are still waiting to initially come has indeed come. And he's been transformed into the divine and sovereign Christ of Christian theology. And in full agreement with every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, verse 14, the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Matthew Henry says, Thus we have seen this sealed book passing with great solemnity from the hand of the Creator into the hand of the Redeemer. The culminating work in the work of redemption by Jesus. I'll close with this plea. My friends, He is worthy. Children, look at me. He's worthy. Young adults, He is worthy. He's worthy. I challenge you, really, to do the very thing that I've challenged myself to do. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, if you profess, if you are here in this room and profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, do what Paul says. In light of what you've heard today, examine yourself. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Christ Jesus is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. You've, today, you've not seen by, by my words, but by the very word of God, that Jesus is indeed worthy of a life completely surrendered to him. All I'll say is let his word do its work in your life. And to the unbeliever here today, I'll ask you this. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? How will you justify yourself before God? J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop from the 19th century, wrote these words to answer this very question. Listen closely. Wherewith can any mortal man come before God? What can we bring as a plea for acquittal before that glorious being in whose eyes the very heavens are not clean? Shall we say that we have done our duty to God? Shall we say that we have done our duty to our neighbor? Shall we bring forward our prayers, our regularity, our morality, our amendments, our church going? Shall we, be a- shall we ask to be accepted because of any of these? Which of these things will stand the searching inspection of God's eye? Which of them will actually justify us? Which of them will carry us clear through judgment and land us safe in glory? He says, none, none. 
None. Take any of the commandments of the ten and let us examine ourselves by it. We have broken it repeatedly. We cannot answer God one of a thousand. Take any of us and look narrowly into our ways and we are nothing but sinners. There is but one verdict. We are all guilty. All deserve hell. All ought to die. Wherewith can we come before God? We must come in the name of Jesus. Standing on no other ground, pleading no other plea than this. Christ died on the cross for the ungodly and I trust in him. Christ died for me and I believe on him. The name of Jesus is the only name by which we shall obtain an inheritance to the gate of eternal glory. If we come to that gate in our own names, we are lost. We shall not be admitted. We shall knock in vain. The mark of the blood of Christ is the only mark that can save us from destruction. When the angels are separating the children of Adam in the last day, if we are not found marked with that atoning blood, we had better never have been born. Oh, let us never forget that Christ must be all to that soul who would be justified. We must be content to go to heaven as beggars, saved by free grace, simply as believers in Jesus, or we shall never be saved at all. Is there one who thinks to reach heaven by saying hastily at the last, Lord, have mercy on me without Christ? Friend, you are sowing misery for yourself, and unless you alter, you will awake to endless woe. Is there anyone thinking to make himself fit for heaven and good enough to pass muster by his own doings? Brother, you are building a babel, and you will never reach heaven in your present state. But is there one who wants to be saved and feels a vile sinner? I say to such a one, come to Christ, and he shall save you. Come to Christ and cast the burden of your soul on him. Fear not, only believe. Do you fear wrath? Christ can deliver you from the wrath to come. Do you fear the curse of a broken law? Christ can redeem you from the curse of the law. Do you feel far away? Christ has suffered to bring you near to God. Do you feel unclean? Christ's blood can cleanse away all sin. Do you feel imperfect? You shall be complete in Christ. Do you feel as if you were nothing Christ shall be all in all to your soul. Never did saint reach heaven with any tale but this. I was washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. And so I implore you today, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Lord, your word, even the most difficult text to read is more joy than anything this world can offer us. Lord, for the redeemed, Father, it is life. It's life. So even the the promises of woes and lamentations have been set aside, nailed to the cross because of Christ's atoning work. And so we rejoice But Father, we should also grieve for those who do not know you. Lord, there are yet people to hear the gospel. There are yet people in this world, in this community, in our families, who to this day have rejected Christ and his forgiveness. Father, most of the world walks around like unforgiven people because most of the world is unforgiven. There's no joy. There's no reason to walk around with any anticipation of some great thing that will happen after this life because they've not experienced life in Christ. 
Lord, but we who are called your people have experienced life in Christ. So change us, Lord. Forgive us, Father, for our apathy. Forgive us, Father, for making Christ fifth or sixth or seventh or fiftieth on our list of things to enjoy. Lord, he must be all in all. So forgive us, Lord, for those of us who have not made him all in all. But Father, there's forgiveness at the cross. And so restore us now at this moment to the joy of your salvation. And may Christ be everything to every person in this room who claims Christ as Savior. And Lord, save the lost person here today. I don't know who's saved and who's lost, but you do, Father. Save the lost person here today. Break through that stony heart, Lord, and crush them that they may see the glories and the excellencies of Christ. Use your word as you would. Have your way, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.